Lord, we're grateful to you. We're grateful to you because uh, we're here. Um, we know you. You've given us truth. You've given us your word. It's, uh, it's always good to laugh a little bit because, quite frankly, the stress level is uh, fairly high. There's stuff we're, uh, stuff we're dealing with. We're, we're, there's stuff that we've got on our shoulders. Uh, there's stuff that uh, is new. And uh, some of us this week got news that uh, wasn't good news. It was uh, bad news. It was difficult news. Uh, perhaps some kind of setback. Perhaps some kind of deep disappointment. Uh, and sometimes, Lord, we just forget to laugh, and sometimes our joy is running on fumes. So it is good to laugh. It is good to uh, just get the stress out a little bit. We're thankful, Lord, for perspective that you give us when we open our Bibles, that uh, we are told in your word that uh, you're in charge of all the issues of our lives, Nothing can come into our lives without your permission. Uh, Lord, we don't always understand what's going on. We don't understand why we deal with the difficulties and trials and afflictions that we do deal with. And we looked at this for weeks in James. We understand that you're in charge and we understand that you're in control and we understand that uh, you're in charge of every detail of our lives. We, we believe in your providence. You do work providentially. But you also work strangely, and that's what throws us sometimes. There are times when we don't get it, and there are times when we don't understand, and there are times when it doesn't make sense to us. It just doesn't, and that's the reality of it. When life's going well, and, and life is pretty much, uh, we're, we're, we're hitting our goals, and we're hitting our objectives, and, and life is sweet, and we have stretches like that. We're just very grateful, and we thank you. We know that all comes from your hand. But there are other times when it just seems like we're just pulling a sled uphill, and we're running out of gas, and we're weary, and we're wondering why it's, it's so difficult and it's so hard. Now, inevitably, there are guys here tonight, and that's their, their story. Um, different issues, different circumstances, different stresses. Some guys have been waiting on you for quite a while they've been praying about a particular situation and there's been no movement whatsoever and Lord after a while that just gets old and 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 when we've waited and waited and prayed and prayed and as far as we can tell we're praying according to your will and maybe our friends are praying with us our wives are praying with us and we're not seeing anything it's so easy to begin to lose our hope so I'd pray tonight for the guys who are in that position of waiting upon you. Um, we like it when the answers come. But there are times when you call us to wait. So would you, tonight, Lord, for the guys that are waiting, would you infuse them with some hope and infuse them with some courage and remind them that you're in charge of the timing, and, and the reason they're still waiting is that the timing is not right yet. Your timing is impeccable. Absolutely impeccable. And, and most of us have walked with you long enough to look back and, and to have seen your timing come through in remarkable ways. Now, help us to remember those times. 
for right now to encourage us. We, we sometimes think, Lord, that when we're in difficult straits, it'll always be this way. But it won't always be this way. It's for a season. It's for a time. It's for a reason. It's for a purpose. We never suffer randomly. We suffer intentionally because you're, you're fine-tuning us. You're developing us. You're getting us ready for something that we know nothing about. We've talked about this in here many, many times. We need to be reminded of that. So we take a minute here and we ponder that. And we ponder your wisdom, not ours, but yours. And Lord, when you work strangely, we just need to say, we're okay with that. Not that you need our permission. We just, we're just submitting. We don't need to get everything. We don't need to understand everything. We just need to know that you're good. And that you do good. And that you do it at the right time. Make this time uh, valuable to us tonight. Make it count. Thanks for these guys coming out. There's a lot of things we could be doing tonight. A lot of things guys could be doing. Uh, their, their time is valuable. It's important. We ask that your spirit would uh, give us what we need tonight so that this time would not be wasted. In Jesus' name, we would make this request. Amen. If you've been with us in James, we've made the point that James is an immensely practical book. This guy doesn't miss around. This guy doesn't waste words. This guy is, is, this guy is all about where the rubber meets the road. He's about living out your faith. He's about applying your faith. We make the uh, comment sometimes that someone has head knowledge without heart knowledge. Uh, the head knowledge has got to get into the heart and it has to be lived out. Uh, God is at work. God is sovereign. Uh, God has created us physically. He's brought us into existence. He has brought us in his timing to know Christ and to save us from our sin. But Philippians tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work within us. We're in the Bible belt here in Texas, and a lot of people go to church. If you go to New England, I was doing a radio interview with some guys out of Boston this afternoon. Uh, there's a ministry up there called Vision New England. If you know anything about New England, you know that in the early years of our nation's history, there was a real strong movement of the Spirit of God in New England, and then there was a drift and they got away from the scriptures, and that's when uh, you had Unitarian churches developing. And uh, people say, what do Unitarians believe? And the answer to that is nothing. You want to know what a Unitarian believes? They don't believe anything in the scripture. If it's in the scripture, they believe the opposite. But So you had a shift, and you had a deterioration in New England in colonial days, uh, just as you had in Israel when you study their history. It's just not New England. Um, New England's not in the Bible Belt, by the way. Did you know that? 
Boston is not part of the Bible Belt. So these guys had a men's conference uh, two weeks ago, and they emailed us. And in Hartford, Connecticut, they had over 3,000 guys in a church in Connecticut. I didn't even know there were churches in Connecticut that would see 3,000 guys. Well, that's like getting 100,000 guys in Texas. You see, that's tough territory up there. You go, to the, you go to the West Coast, or as we affectionately like to call it, the left coast, where I was born and raised. I, mean, I was born and raised in California. You can't pick where you're born. You're just born. But I was born in the normal part of California. And there are normal parts of California. There's an area called the San Joaquin Valley. And it, it's, it runs about 100 miles north of L.A., all the way up past Sacramento, almost up to Mount Shasta, and the San Joaquin Valley is uh, about 600 miles long and about 100 miles wide. And most of the produce that people get from around the country in their stores comes out of the San Joaquin Valley. Not all of it, but a lot of it. When I go to Tom Thumb, I get strawberries from San Luis Obispo, and I get, uh, you know, peaches from Wasco, and I get, uh, you know, carrots from Shafter. I mean, that's where I grew up in that area. And the people that are there came out from Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas in the 30s. Um, So that's the normal part of California. And a lot of people go to church. And in Orange County, a lot of people from Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas came out to Orange County. And they started farms and crops in the 30s. And that's why Orange County has big mega churches like Texas does. But that's not true all the way up and down the West Coast. Those are sort of the exceptions. You get up in the Bay Area, you get up in San Francisco, people don't go to church. You get in Oregon, you get in Washington, it's against the law to have a church. <laughs> Almost. My friend Stu Weber, some of you guys know Stu, wrote the book Tender Warrior. Um, when Stu's church, I mean, they, you know, they were just growing and doing great and bought some property to expand and build a new auditorium. The state filed suit against them because they didn't want a church on that land. The state did. That's not the Bible Belt either, you see? Uh, So in Oregon and Washington, by the way, Oregon and Washington, they have the lowest church attendance per capita of any states in the United States. Now, that's not true in Texas. Texas, a lot of folks go to church. We got big churches. When when friends of ours come and visit from California, they always comment, I can't believe how many churches there are. There are churches everywhere. And and, and a medium sized church in Dallas would be a mega church on the West Coast. And this is very different here when you compare it to the rest of the country. The the Bible belt's different. But it brings its own set of challenges. Because there are a lot of people in Texas and a lot of people in the Bible belt that have the head knowledge. They know the hymns. They got the hymns memorized because they've been in church since they were little kids, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But it's in the head. It's not in the heart. And it's not lived out. And you've met guys, and I've met guys who are Christians, and they got the little fish thing on their car and the whole thing, and you've done business with them, and you'll never do business with them again. Why? Well, because they leave it at church on Sundays. It's in their head, it's not in their heart, and it's not lived out in their life. Isn't it refreshing to meet someone that loves the Lord and they live it out 
Man, that's refreshing. That's a wonderful thing to see. They live out their faith. Mike and I were talking uh, a few minutes ago about, because we're both in California, and we were talking about back when uh, Coach Wooden was at UCLA. And I'm going to tell you something. That, that man is greatly admired and respected, just like Coach Landry was here. I, I, I love what Chuck said one time. Uh, Chuck said, he said, you know, I always thought I was a Cowboys fan. And then I realized one day I was a Tom Landry fan. I think a lot of folks felt that way. When you've got someone like Tom Landry or someone like John Wooden, they're, they're, they're men that we really appreciate because they not only proclaim their faith, but they live out their faith. Now, that's what it's supposed to be all about. And James would say, now, guys, that's what it's all about. It's not talking the talk. It's walking the talk. So James, this guy, this guy, when I read James, it's like every time I get into a chapter, this sucker takes a two-by-four and hits me in the chops with it. I mean, he doesn't miss around. He started off with trials, and okay, and, 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 and then he, he goes, uh, uh, turn with me to James 1. Let's just do a quick review, and it'll take us to chapter 3, where we're going tonight. You got chapter 1, he's on the trials, and we spent a lot of time on that. And then you get into uh, 19, and he's saying, listen, listen, you need to be quick to hear. And as we talked about, we're, um, we're slow to hear. And then he says, you need to be uh, slow to speak. Well, I'm quick to speak. No, he says, you need to be slow to speak. Uh, then he says, you need to be slow to anger. Well, I'm quick to anger. See, he's getting right down to the Christian life, where I live, how I live my life at home, how I live my life with my wife, and how I live it with my kids, and how I live in it uh, in terms of doing business with people. This, this is where it's supposed to be lived out. Then you get into uh, two, and we did a helicopter over two last week. And basically, he says, hey, listen, make sure Make sure you really know the Lord. Make sure you're of the faith. And we talked about 2 Corinthians 13 that says, test yourselves to make sure you're in the faith, that you just don't have the heart knowledge. Make sure you don't just know about Christ. Make sure you know Christ. And I think there are a lot of people in the Bible Belt, a lot of people in Texas that know all about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They've been raised in this culture. It's just what you do. Now in three. Now in three, he's going for the juggler. This guy didn't miss around. I think James, if James were around the day, I think he'd be a linebacker. James just hits you right in the chops. He'll just put a lick on you. And, and he has no remorse. He just keeps coming and he keeps coming and he keeps coming. Louis L'Amour in one of his... Westerns talks about this guy that this cowpoke and you know on Saturday nights he'd get, take a bath and then he'd go in the town and um, uh, he'd get a little liquor and 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 um, he'd usually get in a fight and then he'd go home and you know work cows and Saturday night do it. well that was that was his uh, that was kind of his schedule and uh, he got cleaned up and. Went into town, had a couple drinks, got to look her up, and he gets in a fight with this big guy. And this big guy just beats him to a pulp, 
just beats the crud out of him. And they carry him out, and somebody puts him in the back of the wagon and takes him home and wakes up the next morning and, you know, takes him a few days just to kind of get his sense back. Well, Saturday night, he goes back, gets his bath, goes back to the same saloon, gets a couple drinks, there's the big guy. And he says, well, you know what? Let's do this one more time. And he takes on the big guy, and the big guy beats the crud out of him, beats him to a pulp. You know, both eyes are swollen. He can't even see straight. Once again, they put him in the wagon and take him back. Next Saturday night, he, he, gets, he gets in the old metal tub, cleans up, goes into town, same saloon, takes a couple shots of whiskey. Here comes the big guy. He said, let's go, bro. And once again, this guy beats him within an inch of his life. Um, the next week, he shows up. And the big guy's left town because he's just sick and tired of dealing with him. Uh, he, he can handle the guy, and he can take him. He just doesn't want the irritation. Now, you know what? That's kind of James to me. James just keeps coming at me. And, 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 and listen, if you're a teacher and you're a preacher, he's going to get right in your face here in James 3. Look at this. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Can I say this to you? I think those are kind of refreshing words. That teachers, if, if you teach the Word of God, you got a small group, you got a Sunday school class, you teach some boys, whatever it is, if you open up the Scriptures and if you teach the Scriptures, or if you're a pastor or you're an elder and you teach the Word of God, James says, you need to understand something. You are going to incur a stricter judgment. I think a lot of teachers have forgotten this. I think a lot of teachers have forgotten this admonition. I don't know about you, if you teach, but I'll tell you what this does to me. This scares me. This frightens me a little bit. This puts the fear of the Lord in me. Um, and that's not a bad thing, is it? Because as I read Proverbs, I find that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I find that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I think 14 times in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the benefits of the fear of the Lord. It is, there is a healthy fear knowing that as a teacher, one day you're going to stand before Christ and you are going to give an account for not only how you taught, but for how you lived your life. There are two ways that we teach. Now, we teach, obviously, with our lips. We teach with our mouths. We open up the Scriptures, and we teach. But there's another way that we teach. We not only teach with our lips, but we teach with our lives. And it is a powerful thing when you see someone who teaches with their lips, and then you observe their life, and their lips, which they proclaim, matches up with how they live their life. That's called integrity. That's called congruency. All the pieces add up. All the pieces match up. But when we see, and we see it way too often, someone who is a gifted communicator, someone who's a gifted speaker. And let's say this about gifted speakers. Gifted speakers are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. All it means is they've been given a gift. 
You know, let me tell you something about gifted speakers. Gifted speakers don't have to work if they're gifted. They don't. They've got a gift. They've got a skill. They can, um, they, they can talk their way out of anything. If you're good with your mouth, that is a blessing and it's a curse. Because you're quick, you can think on your feet, you can read people, and you don't have to be in ministry. You can be out in the world. You, you can be in the corporate world. But you're dealing with people, you're in sales. Hey, let me tell you something. When you meet a salesman that's got integrity, that's a great combination. The guy's glib, the guy's winsome, the guy can pull you in. And not all those guys, you see, they're so quick to speak and they're so quick on their feet and they know what you want to hear and they know how to work you and they know how to play you like a piano. But a lot of times their character doesn't match up. Good speakers are a dime a dozen because it's a gift. But according to the scriptures, Paul said to Timothy, show yourself a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's more than just a gift. When you're a teacher, you've got to be putting in the time. You've got to be putting in the hours. I want to tell, I tell, I tell you guys something. It's kind of interesting. Um, I took a course from Chuck. I think it was 1980, maybe 1981. And I was, I was a rookie pastor in California. And, uh, and I heard that Chuck was teaching a course on preaching over at Talbot Seminary at Biola University. So I called up and I said, hey, I want, to, uh, I, I, I want to go to that seminar that Swindoll's teaching. And they said, well, that's not a seminar, it's a doctoral course. You've got to be in the doctoral program. I said, you've got to be in the doctoral program to take the course? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, send me an application. That's really true. And I thought, well, I'll just fill out the application and I'll take the course and that's it. That's how I wound up getting my doctorate. I started in Chuck's course and then... <laughs> That's really a true story. So uh, I went down and took this course, and Chuck was preaching. Uh, he was teaching, uh, and with his schedule at the Fullerton Church, I mean, he just couldn't do a lot of that. I, I told him this a few years ago, and we got kind of had some fun with this. But I said, "Hey, I was in that course you taught there." He says, "No kidding." So he's teaching this on preaching and all this. And you know what's interesting? The thing I'll never forget is. Chuck went over his normal week for us. And um, what he did to get ready to prepare to teach the Scriptures on Sunday, to do a 45-minute message. And I have to tell you, I came away from that stunned. Stunned. I've never forgotten. That impacted me for the rest of my life. When he laid out his schedule... And he told us, you know, on Sunday, you know, Sunday's over, and at that time he did Sunday morning, he did Sunday night. Well, Monday, he's already thinking about, and, and he's already worked out the book in advance and studied the book, but Monday, he's thinking about next Sunday. And he works back from Sunday. He works back throughout his whole week till Monday. And I forget, he said, I've got to have the outline ready for Tuesday, because it goes in the bulletin on Tuesday. So I already have to have my bulletin. I've got to, I got to have the outline clear in my head. And then he talked about his study schedule in the mornings and how he handled his mornings and what he said no to and how many hours he put in. And then he'd go in 
and what his schedule was, you know, for meetings and like that. But, but the whole thing was geared around making sure he had ample study time. And then he had it all, and he had two, two messages to put together back then. And I'll never forget him saying this. And then he said, he said, so Friday, it's ready to go, it's ready to preach. But on Saturday nights, he said, um, I'll eat a light supper. I never go out, never accept social uh, invitation Saturday night. And after dinner on Saturday night, I go back over it. It's ready to preach. It's ready to go. But then I'll spend several hours on Saturday night going over this and that. Now, now, quite frankly, and he might be embarrassed for me to tell you this, but it's the truth. I remember that schedule, and he was putting in a good 20-some hours putting together these messages. I mean, easy, easy 20-some hours to speak for 45 minutes. Now, can I tell you something? He's very gifted. Is he not? Could he coast on his gifts? How old is Chuck now? 104? <laughs> He's been teaching a long time. He's got in thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of study. I mean, he's been studying the Bible for over 50 years in depth. Now, I'm going to tell you something. He's still putting in the hours. He's still putting in the hours. Doesn't broadcast it, doesn't mean, but I'm telling you, he's putting in the hours, and he could be coasting, but he's putting in the hours. Why? Because he's doing it unto the Lord, and he wants to make sure it's correct. It's just not how you're gifted. We've got to rightly divide the word of truth. And then it doesn't stop there. Then you've got to live it. You've got to live it. I hadn't planned on saying this, but one of the most impressive things I've ever seen is a number of years ago in Leadership Journal, they did an interview with Chuck and his two sons. And it was just an open forum, and it was, they were taping it. And uh, it was pretty direct. And one of the things they talked about was balancing your family. And, you know, and they didn't mess around. And it was pretty pointed. And Chuck talked about some mistakes he'd made, and he wished he'd go back and do this different. And, and I'm going to tell you something. It just had the ring of truth. And his boys were with him. And his boys could say what they wanted. They threw in their two cents. I thought, oh, that's healthy. That's healthy. Because you see, if you want to know if somebody is the real deal, I mean the real deal, just don't go off their CDs and don't go off their books. You go talk to their kids. Then you'll find out if they're the real deal. Go talk to their wife. Ask them what they're like at home. See, now this is where James is going to start meddling. Oh, and by the way, if you're a teacher, you're going to incur a stricter judgment. It doesn't mean you don't, you're not saved. It doesn't mean you, you lose eternal life. It just means that there is a beam of seat rewards that believers are going to stand before the Lord Jesus, and some of our works are wood, hay, and stubble and are going to be burned up, and others that are done as unto the Lord, we're going to be rewarded for it. And, and, and when our lives match up to what we're teaching as teachers, we teach with our words and we teach with our life, that's great. And here's the other thing. 
when we blow it and when we fall short, when we admit it, I think God honors that. Don't you? I'm going to tell you something. Dysfunctional families would never sit down and have an interview with a Christian magazine and talk turkey because they can't handle it. Functional families deal with the dirty laundry. And we've all got dirty laundry, don't we? Because we're human. That's what he says in verse 2. We all stumble in many ways, and we would all say amen. We all stumble. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Well, none of us are able to bridle the whole body. Now, watch what this guy's going to do. Watch what James is going to do. There's nothing more practical than what he's going to deal with next. And we're going to roll right into it and read a number of verses. Note verse 3. Now, if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. How do you control a horse? You put the bit in the mouth, and you control the, by that bit inside the teeth of that horse, you control the whole body of a horse. Then verse 4, look at the ships. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Big ship, it's got a rudder. And in perspective, the rudder is small compared to the rest of the size of the ship. But that rudder is everything. And a captain has got his hand on the wheel, and that wheel, with just a touch, a touch to the right, a touch to the left, he steers that massive ship because it controls the rudder. Verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Huh. I remember reading a book a few years ago about uh, a, uh, a guy who was considered one of the top arson investigators in the state of California. This guy had worked his way up the ranks, but his specialty was investigating arsons. And the guy actually became a legend. He, uh, he just had a knack. This guy had a sixth sense. And uh, he, he, he just, I mean, he just was wired. He could figure things out that other investigators couldn't quite figure out. And when he'd show them the evidence, it just all made sense. So he started being called in on other investigations in other counties. As I recall, I think he was out of Orange County. And they'd call him into L.A. County, or they'd call him up to Kern County. Or, and, and he was speaking at, at conventions uh, all over the state. I mean, this guy was at the top of his feet. And it was uncanny how often there would be a, a fire set or a forest fire, and, and he was driving down the freeway on his way to something, and, and he'd see the smoke and pop in, and they'd say, hey, we got this situation. And Well, it turned out he was the guy setting the fire. And he sits in federal penitentiary today, denies that he's ever set a fire. But the evidence was overwhelming. He has murdered people. Big hardware store in Los Angeles where people were trapped and lost their lives. 
he set the fire. On the way home from a, uh, a statewide convention, I believe it was in Fresno, he stopped off in Bakersfield, set a big fire. That's how, that's how they tracked him, off uh, gasoline receipts and where he was and paying a toll, and that's how they got him. He did this for years. No wonder he was so good. No wonder he could cover, uncover evidence that nobody else knew. Uh, he was living a double life. And he would set these small fires, and he knew exactly how to set fires and, the, and how to make them combustible, and he knew exactly how long it would take to ignite because the guy was an expert. This guy set forest fires. He set fires in large hardware stores that killed people. Look at what he says here about the tongue. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. He's talking about the tongue. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. So have you ever taken your kids to the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus? We used to go every year when our kids were young. We probably went, without exaggeration, five, six, seven years in a row. And every time we go back, there'd be a different trained animal act. Some of you guys are old enough to remember Clyde Beatty. He was the first big-time lion tamer. Now, to be a lion tamer, there's got to be something wrong with you. Because you take these big male African lions, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of them, throw in some Bengal tigers, put them in this big cage, and then you get in and you lock the door. That's just not right. That's not normal. Is it? But they tame these things. And you've seen it, and I've seen it. I've seen, uh, we went back the next year, and they had, this guy came in with all these seals. He's got these seals. It was unbelievable. I mean, they're doing algebra. They're doing all kinds of stuff. <laughs> he had these suckers trained. It, it was incredible. Then we go back the next year, and this guy's doing bears. He's got bears in there. They're, I mean, it's incredible. You see, we, we can tame animals. We can tame the creature. You go to SeaWorld. They got dolphins, they got killer whale. I mean, they're just taming everything. Okay? Look at verse 8. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What's that? used to believe that. Yeah, we'd say it all the time. That's just a crock. Now, in here, corporately, in our lifetimes, man, there's a lot of broken arms, a lot of broken wrists, some broken ribs, you know, maybe broken jaw or two, playing ball, you know. It's amazing what happens to us as kids. I, I, remember, I remember getting... Uh, 
playing Little League Baseball in Bakersfield, and I remember uh, I was a catcher, and I threw off my mask, and something happened. I don't know. I, I, I just remember getting hit in the face with a baseball bat. I'll never forget that. I remember the first guy ran up to me, the coach. I just got hit in the face with a bat. I'll never forget. He, he walks up to me. He says, don't cry. <laughs> well, let me hit you in the face with this bat. <laughs> what do you mean, don't cry? <laughs> I can still feel that thing. Now, I recovered from that. You break your arm, you recovered from that. Sticks and stones may break my bones, and you recover. But words will never hurt you. Let me tell you something. Words will kill you. Are you 45, 55, 65? You can still remember things that were said to you 50 years ago that cut you to the quick. kids will say. I'll tell you what's the roughest is when you get it from your father. I, I've seen guys that are 40 and 50 and 60 years old that are still trying to earn the approval of their fathers. And in some cases, their fathers are dead. That's pretty sad. Now, why are they working so hard and doing all this and trying to I mean, that's the driving motivation. Because when they were kids, they heard something like this. You'll never amount to anything. Now, some of you guys heard that growing up. You're a loser. Can't you do anything right? You know what that is, guys? That's poison. That's poison that gets into the system of a little boy or a little girl, and they never get it out of their system, especially when it comes from a father. That's devastating. Um, the home in which you were raised, what was it like? What was the atmosphere in your home? Fathers set the atmosphere. You say, well, my dad wasn't there. My dad left. Then your dad set the atmosphere. If your father left when you were young, he set the atmosphere by his absence and by cutting out, didn't he? See, even in his absence, he sets the atmosphere. Fathers set the atmosphere of a home. The home in which you were raised and the words of your father sets the atmosphere in your home, there was either an atmosphere of construction or destruction. Is that not right? In other words, in your home, people by your father were either built up by words or they were torn down by words. Is that not correct? I, I, I know of a family, and I know of the kids in the family. I know some of them better than others, but uh, their, their father is a pretty well-known Christian leader and um, um, has traveled widely and all that sort of thing. There are people that revere that man. I have seen books dedicated to him. But I um, also know that... Uh, 
the way that he treated his family with words when he was not out ministering. Very gracious guy. If you met him, you'd love him. But at home, he was hell on wheels. Absolutely had a tongue that was out of control. Never, never was physically abusive, but verbally, just beat the tar out of people. His wife, his kids. Uh, one of his kids has basically devoted his life to um, attempting to undermine the faith of college students as he teaches in university. And it would be easy to say, well, he's got issues with God and he's an atheist. He didn't have issues with God. He's got issues with his dad who represents God. When we're small, our dads represent the Lord to us. Gary Thomas is a writer and a counselor uh, up in Portland. And in one of his books, he talks about, um, uh, he just talks about they were all having dinner and, you know, sitting around. He's got like four or five kids and, and his, and his youngest, his little girl, she's about 18 months, and she's in the high chair. And, you know, the kids are all sitting around the table and, you know, slopping spaghetti. And you know how that goes. And just a normal deal. And um, so the older kids, you know, they're having dinner, and they're talking with the little girl in the high chair. And they're, uh, she had a picture book, and they're showing, I, I don't know. As I remember the story, there was a little picture that they pulled out of the book, and there was a puppy. And she says, puppy, you know. And then... Uh, there was a picture of a cat. Of course, she says cat. She might have been 14 months. I don't remember. She's a little kid. And then after that, it was getting towards Christmas time, and they started talking about um, what was happening at Christmas, and they had a little manger scene. And they had Mary, and they had Joseph, and Jesus. And, and she's identifying everything, and she's going, she's going Mary, and Joseph, and Jesus, and then they talked about God. And in the middle of it, it's just a conversation, it's just a family eating dinner and talking and normal stuff. And then so she's pointing at things and identifying it. And then in the middle of this, she looks at her daddy and she points at her daddy, Gary. And she said, Jesus. And and Gary looked at her and she said, Sweetheart, Daddy's not Jesus. Daddy's daddy. She goes, Daddy, Jesus. And he said, sweetheart, daddy is not Jesus. She said, daddy, God. And then it hit him what she was saying. In her little mind, as she was putting together all the pieces, you know who God was to her? It was her father. To little children, fathers represent the heavenly father. This is why it's so critical how we live our lives, and how we handle our speech. Not here, but there. I've never had trouble being spiritual at church. Have you? I'm pretty good at it. I know what to say. I know how to say it. I'm real careful. I'm really careful with my speech when I'm at church on Sundays. And you are too. When was the last time on Sunday you called some usher an SOB? <laughs> you usually don't do that. Funny how we can control it when we need to, isn't it? 
You may think he's an SOB, but you usually don't say it. Now, you might say it on the way home if you're not watching your tongue and your kids are in the car and they hear that. My problem was never being spiritual on the way to church. No, no, I take it back. My problem was never being spiritual at church. My problem was always being spiritual on the way to church. For 15 years, I pastored. And, you know, my kids were small, and we're trying to get, get everybody ready and get to church. And one of my goals was to be there on time. I mean, I thought it was a nice gesture on my part. But inevitably, something would go wrong, and one of the kids had done this, or, you know, vomited this, or Cheerios in the, I, I don't know, or Josh came down with a red sock and a green sock, and it wasn't Christmas, and I'm standing there, and I'm trying to get everybody in the car, and let's get this show on the road. Let's get over there. I've got to, you know, it's just chaos. It's just absolute chaos. And I'm starting to, I, we finally get them in, and I'm sweating, and I'm hot, and, you know, I got, you know, sweat coming on my collar, and I mean, I'm drooling. I mean, it's just, I'm just, I mean, it's just getting them there, the stress, and I'm driving 55 and a 25, and I'm going over speed bumps, and then my boys start fighting in the back, and I'm driving the church like this. <laughs> Come screaming into the parking lot, tires squealing, fishtail into a spot. Get out of the car, there's a lady there. Oh, pastor, how are you? Oh, praise God, how are you? Oh, it's wonderful to see. Oh, isn't God good? Oh, all the time he's good. Except in the car on the way to church. Now, that's just life, isn't it? But those kids are watching, aren't they? You want to raise an atheist? Then control your mouth at church. And don't control it at home. Let the poison flow. And you'll kill them. That used to scare me to death. When I was growing up, when I was growing up, every pastor that we had in our church growing up, his, um, that I can recall without exception, I've thought about this several times, every pastor we had that I can recall growing up, when his kids basically at high school and college, uh, they basically took off and left the faith. A, a couple of the girls didn't, but the boys pretty much tubed. And, I, and I, I've often wondered about that. I think I've told you this. I can remember being at UCLA, Mike, that there's a, that Sizzler Steakhouse in Westwood. I, I, my, I had some friends that had an apartment there, and I just decided I was going to go to seminary. I just graduated from college, and we're walking down to the Sizzler Steakhouse in Westwood, just down from UCLA. And this, I'm talking to this gal who married my brother Mike, Kathy, and I remember Kathy saying to me, she says, Steve, does anything scary about going into ministry and I was 21 years old and I said yeah I'm afraid I'll lose my kids because I'd seen it happen too often now listen kids have wills and kids can choose their own course and they can you can teach them and live it and model it and they can go their own way and some of you have got kids like that 
Just because you have a prodigal, it doesn't mean necessarily that you did a poor job of raising them. It could mean that. Now, you didn't do a perfect job. I, I'm not trying to put unmitigated guilt on anybody here. I'm saying, let's get this in balance. You can raise a kid right, and they can make their own decisions and make their own choices and go their own way. We all know that. And we would pray that they would come back at the right time and God would bring them back. And that's why the prodigal son story is in the Bible. But we also know there are some kids, as the reason they have taken off and the reason that they have no interest in the Lord is that they have seen a double life. They've seen the smooth, kind, nice words out there, but the poison at home. And it's cut them to the quick. Look at, um, look at verse 9. With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? The answer is no. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. In other words, there shouldn't be two different things coming out of the same mouth. It ought to be consistent. George Washington was uh, highly revered, as you know. One of our greatest presidents. His life um, matched his words. In fact, early on, there was a movement in America, it was a very strong movement, to proclaim George Washington as king of America. Did you know that? It was a strong grassroots movement, and he turned it down and squashed it. He really didn't want to serve as president. He wanted to be at Mount Vernon. He loved that great estate. But because he loved his country, he went and served. There was another general in the Continental Army who had insane jealousy about George Washington. He resented him. He resented his reputation. He resented the adoration. He wanted to be like him. He uh, coveted his post. His name was uh, Thomas Conway. Um, yeah, Conway. I had to make sure I had that right. In fact, you can look up. Go home and Google. You guys know what that is? <laughs> a lot of us don't. We're old school. Uh, I thought Google was a frozen dessert, but it's not. It's a, you can do an internet search. Put in the Conway Cabal, C-A-B-A-L, and this will pull up. And you'll read about this General Thomas uh, Conway, who was insanely jealous of Washington. And what uh, he began to do was he began to undercut Washington with his words. And just very uh, surreptitiously, under the surface, he would say things about Washington's character. He would spread rumors. He would say this. Just a word here, just a word there. Well, this went on for months, and then it went on for years. And uh, it began to spread through the ranks, and some other officers uh, were pulled to Conway and felt like he was the man that should be in charge, and they began to work against George Washington. Uh, it began to spread to Congress. Certain congressmen were persuaded by the rumors that Conway was putting out about Washington. And they weren't true. They were slanderous. They were ruining his reputation. Well, there were some officers that were with Washington that knew this was going on. And it reached such a fever pitch. There was almost an insurrection that was going to mount against George Washington. So one of his officers went to Thomas Conway. This man's name was John Cadwallader. And Cadwallader went to Conway and challenged him to a duel. 
because he had slandered with his tongue the character of George Washington, a man he knew and respected and admired. They met the next morning to have their duel as they did back then. And their backs were to one another. They paced off, they turned, and Cadwallader carefully aimed and shot Thomas Conway in the mouth on purpose. What he didn't plan on was the bullet coming out the back of his throat. Conway actually lived. But it was recorded after the duel that Cadwallader said, I shot him in the mouth on purpose to stop the poison and to stop the slander. Words to that effect. Uh, Conway lived. He lived for a number of years. He actually outlived George Washington. He had very little to say about Washington after that event. <laughs> I just got a few minutes left. Let me say four things about speech as, as we wrap this up. Number one, speech can be cutting. It can be cutting. Ephesians chapter 3, real quick. Verse 15. Actually, it's Ephesians 4. Phrase we all know. And the phrase is just simply this. But speaking the truth in what? Love. It doesn't say just speaking the truth. It says speaking the truth in love. Most of us in this room, we fall in one of two camps. Don't you love it when everybody generalizes and put people into one of two camps? Basically, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who put people in camps and those who don't. But when it comes to speaking the truth in love, many of us are truth-oriented. We're in the truth camp. We have no problem declaring truth. We'll say it, you know, let the chips fall. Others of us are in the loving camp. We're very concerned about people's feelings, and we care about people, and that's a very great trait. Now, sometimes for people that just speak truth, they're not real loving. I'm always reminded in Proverbs, it says, wrap truth and kindness around your neck. Because, see, I can shoot pretty straight, but I've got to be kind. I have no problem laying out truth, but, man, I've got to work on being kind sometimes and being loving. Now, if you're loving, sometimes you're so loving that you won't tell people the truth because you don't want to hurt them. So here's the balance. We're not to be cutting in our speech. We're to speak the truth in love. Look at verse uh, 29 of Ephesians 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. That doesn't necessarily mean profanity. It can be. But an, an unwholesome word can be poison, like James talking about. A cutting, cutting word that gets in the system of somebody that they'll remember 40 or 50 years down the road. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification. That means to build up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So speech can be cutting. Number two, speech can be complaining. Complaining. If you look at Numbers 11, God talked about the children of Israel. And one of the things he said about the children of Israel, and, and I won't take the time, but in Numbers 11, as they were going through the wilderness, what was their problem? 
The problem is they complained. They complained about everything. God took care of their needs. God took care of Numbers 11.1. I will read it. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. Uh, Verse 4, it says, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. They're in a desert. God's given them everything they need. He's meeting every single need. And what are they doing? We wish we were slaves again in Egypt because, man, did we ever have cucumbers. They're just whiners. They're complainers. God hates that. He hates it when it comes out of our mouth. He hates it when it comes out of our speech. There's a little chorus. Give thanks with a grateful heart. That's it, man. Here's another old one. Oldie but goodie. Tommy Dorsey used to do this. Count your blessings. Didn't he do that? Actually, he didn't, but he should have. Count your blessings. Some of you young guys don't even know who Tommy Dorsey was. He played basketball for Wooden at UCLA, didn't he? Hey, what's the old song? Count your blessings. Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Okay, here's the third one on speech. Speech can be complimentary wrongly. Can I say that again? You can compliment with your words wrongly. Look at Proverbs verse 24. Isn't that right after Psalms? It sure is. Proverbs 24, 24 is a good word in our day. It says this, He who says to the wicked, you are righteous. Peoples will curse him, nations will abhor him. But to those who rebuke the wicked will be delight and a good blessing will come upon them. You know what always amazes me when you've got elections going on in the nation? It amazes me how many churches bring in reprobates. Absolute godless, immoral, anti-God, anti-truth, reprobates, scum, and applaud them and tell them they are righteous. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, peoples will curse him, nations will abhor him. You don't do that. You don't compliment the wrong people. Psalm 15 says you despise reprobates, but you honor those who fear the Lord. Here's number four. Uh, Speech compliments correctly. We're still in Proverbs. Just go to Proverbs 25.11. 25.11 says this, like apples of gold and settings of silver. Do you get that picture? Just think about that for a minute. Apples of gold, pretty valuable, in settings of silver. Boy, that'd be quite a piece of work, wouldn't it? Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstance. It's precious. It's a word of edification. 
Have you ever had someone say to you just the right word at the right time? Okay, guys, let's wrap this up. Here's our problem. We've all screwed up. We, we, we've all done this, haven't we? We've had fresh water and salt water come out of our mouths. We've said things we wish we could go back and take back. We have said things to, to people that we love. We've said things that have, that have hurt people. That have, so, so here's the deal. What do you do about that? When you say the wrong thing to someone, when you say the wrong thing to someone in your family, here's a question. What do you do? Let me tell you the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do when you say the wrong thing is to do nothing. That's the worst thing you can do. What's the right thing to do? The right thing to do is to go deal with it. Initiate. My daughter, Rachel, 27. When she was about 10, I'll never forget this as long as I live. Um, well, I had a pretty bad week. And the reason I had a bad week is that I was, it started on a Monday, but I was going to a conference on Friday and Saturday, and I had to have four brand new talks. There were going to be about 2,500 people at this deal. And I had to prepare four messages. And so that week was absolutely intense. And, uh, well, Monday night, I've set aside time to work on, and I get a call from a guy in the church. I don't know him too well, but this guy's frantic. He's panicked. He said, I've had a situation, and I need you to come over and talk with me because I've been falsely accused by someone at my business, and this concerns a, a, a matter of immorality and a matter of integrity, and uh, uh, the, the, my whole life is on the line, my reputation, and so one of the guys on the board and myself, we went over there, and we met with the guy, and we met with him until about midnight. The next morning, we met with somebody from his, from his uh, company. We met with several other people. It, that, that took most of uh, the morning until, in fact, it went all the way to lunch. And then I had about an hour and a half. He called me again. I went over and met with someone else that he had brought in. Then the next day, I met with him and his wife and the accusations and all this. I basically spent Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I don't think I spent an hour working on the talks because almost waking every hour, waking hour was spent with him and his crisis and putting out this thing where he had been falsely accused. And then Thursday night, about 6 p.m., I found out he was lying to me the whole time, and it was all true, and he was guilty. I'm still kind of hacked about that. <laughs> and all those hours were absolutely gone. And I had about 24 hours to get ready. And I was a little hacked. I called Mary. I said, I'm staying at the office. I worked till, I don't know, I was there till about 9.45. I just ran out of gas. And I came home. I, I, I can't think. I sit down. I turn on sports, some game. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm seething. I, I got steam coming out of my ears. And for some reason, every once in a while, I'm in the family room. The boys are in bed. But Rachel, who's about 10 or 11, she kind of keeps, every once in a while, she'll kind of flip through the family room and do something. And, you know, you know, she's a little girl. And she goes in the kitchen and gets scissors. I don't, I don't know what she was doing. But I'm just kind of sitting there steaming. And, and after about 20 minutes, and it was like 10 after 10, quarter after 10, well, she's in bed by 10. It's 10.20, it's 10.25. She flitted one too many times. And I, and I remember she came by and I, I said, Rachel. She goes, yeah, Dad. I said, get in 
bed now. But daddy, I'm, I don't want to hear it. Just get in bed. But daddy, I don't want to hear another word. Get in bed now. Tell you, I know how to run a family. <laughs> I write books on that. She breaks into tears. She runs up and she gets in bed. All right, we're going to get some control around here. And about five minutes later, Mary comes downstairs and says, Steve, I just wanted to mention something to you that the reason Rachel was up, and I know it's past her bedtime, but you know that science project we've been working on? And I said, yeah. She said, well, she was picked up by the mom after carpool, and when she got out of the car, she had her backpack, and she walked up, and she turned. She left her science project in the back, but the mom had driven off, and the family was going on an out-of-town retreat, and this was before cell phones, and they're six hours away, and we can't get it, so we're up there trying to redo the science project. That's why she was up. Am I helping with the science project? No, I'm watching some game, thinking about wringing some guy's neck. And I said, oh. Well, I, I, I didn't know that. And Mary said, well, I know you didn't know, but that's why she was up. Mary wasn't getting on my case. She was just telling me why she was up. Gosh. So what do you do? I had a choice. I could sit there, or I could go up there and handle it. So I went upstairs, and Rachel was in bed. And I said, sweetheart, let me tell you something. I didn't know what was going on. And I'm very sorry. I didn't know what happened on your science project. And why, not, why don't you go ahead and get up? And, and, and I said, but Rachel, before you get up, let me ask you something. Would you forgive me? Because I was wrong. Hey, guys, when you're wrong, say you're wrong. Don't make an excuse. Corey Ten Boom once said, the blood of Jesus has never cleansed an excuse. If you're wrong, tell them you're wrong. They know you're wrong. I said, sweetheart, I was wrong. I, I couldn't have been more wrong. Would you forgive me? And she said, Daddy, I forgive you. She said, Daddy, you're very tired. I'll never forget that. And I was very tired. And I thought, you know, maybe I need to go to bed <laughs> before I emotionally damage anyone else in the family tonight. And I said, well, Rachel, I'll tell you what. Maybe I should go to bed because I am pretty tired and I got to get up early. But... Are you gonna, she said, Daddy, I'm going to get up and work with Mommy on the project. I said, okay, good. And she forgave me. I went to bed, and I couldn't go to sleep. You know why I couldn't go to sleep? Because I was thinking about how easy it would be for me with my mouth that runs off so fast to emotionally damage this little girl, how easy that would be. I mean, I, was, I couldn't sleep. I was in there an hour. I couldn't sleep. Finally, I got up, put on my clothes. I went down to the 24-hour Kroger. They had this little flower section. I got a little round vase with a couple of roses. And I found this card with a picture of a man looking out of a doghouse. <laughs> it's true. I bought 100 of them. <laughs> and they went ahead and embossed my name on it. I just carry them with me. But I went home and I took the card and I wrote her a little note and I put it at the breakfast table where she'd eat her cereal in the morning. Because I had ruined her evening. 
And um, I, I, I wanted to try to make her day a little bit. That's what James is talking about. We've all screwed up. If you admit it, they'll love you for it. And they'll forgive you. And why don't we just admit it? Because it's supposed to be lived out there, isn't it, guys? So, Lord, we bow our heads before you. And thank you for the grace and forgiveness you give us like Niagara Falls that never stops. But, Lord, we'd sure like to grow here. Help us, Lord, to, to hit the brake. Help us to put a sensor on this thing. We, we, we're, we're just... We, we really do, Lord, ask for grace to grow here. And we believe that it would be your desire to answer that prayer. Maybe we need to go and talk with a family member that we have wronged and that we have cut deeply. And it's been fouling and festering. And if we're not careful, it's going to get to the point of being embittered. Give us courage to go handle it with a broken spirit so that you can heal it and fix it and be honored. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.